Okay, Alvaro, so to use a footballing analogy, you are my hat trick today because you will be the, uh, the third podcast uh, of the day. And so I will call it a perfect hat trick. So left foot, right foot header. Um, and how are you, first of all? Well, good luck with the hat trick, first of all. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Nice to be here again. In a while, we haven't talked. Yeah, but all because of really good stuff. So you've uh, you have a new addition to your family. You've become an uncle. I you told me. That's true for the second time. Yes. So congratulations. Okay, so you already had a nephew, and now you have a niece, or is it the other way around? Or? The other way around. A niece okay. first. By my uh, older brother, and now the younger one, Marius. I think you know him. He's got mm -hmm. a little boy. Fantastic. Okay. So you're obviously the family is now waiting for you uh, because you've been overtaken by your little brother. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't feel that kind of social pressure yet, but <laughs> good. it's good, definitely good, good. nice. Yeah. After all of these podcasts, I think if there's one thing that's come out, it's uh, social pressure perhaps isn't the best thing to uh, allow yourself to be dictated by. Um, but anyway, it's a wonderful gift to the family to have a new addition. Um, and so obviously we wish uh, the newcomer all the best for a very long and happy life. Thank um, you. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so... Our conversation today, so we already kind of talked about something like this, but, um, you know, we were going to talk about the, the Stay Behind Network. However, you've thrown up uh, an interesting topic, and I think the best thing to do is to let you introduce it. Well, I suggested the idea to talk also about something that I came across because it has been you know, turned into uh, a Netflix documentary recently about an episode um, that looks at the, uh, that takes place in the, after the fall of the Soviet, of the Berlin Wall and how the, well, the Eastern German um, economic system was incorporated into the Western world, the Western German economy, but in general into the capitalist economy uh, by a state organization called Treuhand. Um, I don't know the English term. Trusted agency. Ah, very good. Yes, trusted agency. It was just, you know, a kind of euphemism to, if you want, in retrospective, to um, yeah, label what was yeah, the, the main state institution in charge of this um, shift from Eastern, from social socialist economy to to capitalist economy. And yes, I found there was a connection somehow to our topics because it seems there were some covered there was some covered action involved too in the assassination. Uh, it seemed to me at first in the assassination of the of the former leader of this um, state institution called Treuhand, and uh, which was attributed and still is attributed to the uh, Rote Armee fraction, the Red Arm, Army fraction, um, left wing terrorist group of the uh, 70s and 80s, especially. 
and yes, I think uh, the the link was there in terms of you know co covered action that does not reach or did not reach in its complexity uh, and all its intricacies and implications to the consciousness of the population as many of the covered actions we have talked about in the past didn't and uh, especially stay behind so that was my that was the idea of bringing up this topic too mm. I, I mean i don't I, know how you see it how do how you see this rohweder was his name rohweder um uh, episode yeah um uh, for me it's very interesting because i also f first sort of heard about the subject on on the basis of uh, i believe uh, this particular uh, series and what also interested me was that there was a comparison as you alluded to in your introduction to you know jfk they said this is the german jfk and as you said you know the intricacies involved in the john f kennedy assassination go far beyond what was uh, the case in Rohveda. Um, but there are other interesting elements in this case, which I find to be of particular interest to me. I love the comparison between um, the economies, um, fascinated by the process of reunification. Um, the, ch the general change that occurred was meteoric. And sometimes now looking back at it, you know, 30 years later, it's easy to underestimate the change that uh, occurred directly in Berlin, um, mm. directly in Germany, but also thereafter around Europe. And then you know, the knock-on effect we can still feel today through global politics. And, you know, there is a very, very interesting um, sort of backstory to uh, the, the the problems that really occurred. So, you know, I don't know how familiar you are, because I believe you were probably born. What, what was the what, what year were you born? Eighty eight. Eighty eight. Okay, yeah. So obviously you don't really remember too much of this uh, of what happened, but um, I'm, I'm sure your your family and friends have have spoken about it. But I mean, essentially, there's a lot of mistrust even today, between people who are from the former East and people who are from the former West, uh, and not distrust for one another, but the uh, institutional distrust, um, the, the motivations behind decisions, the way things were done, mm -hmm. and you know, the, the politics of it, the economics of it, you know, and it's also, it, it goes both ways, because uh, people from the former East are critical of how companies came from the West and uh, abroad, as you said, in a globalized world. Um, and they essentially bought out these um, former East German companies and then just butchered them. You know, the, 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 you know, the jobs were basically gone. Uh, the people who worked in these factories, in these companies from the former East Germany, they didn't exist anymore. Um, so there was a lot of controversy with regards to how this process in itself came about. Um, on the other hand, there was also a lot of um, discontent, shall we say, from former West Germans because they had to pay a certain amount of money every month that came directly out of their uh, paychecks for assisting the former East Germany 
come up, as it were, to you know have the same level of um, you know infrastructure of living standards. And this was something that finished this year, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. So that 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 payment came to an end this year. And uh, uh, this is a this is a special tax burden payment imposed on Westerns as an act of solidarity, which was exactly. in uh, place for a, a couple of decades. Yes. Yeah. And but so that, that would, only came yeah. to an end recently. Yeah. Well, I would I would distinguish it, however, from the um, the process, the immediate process that took that took place after the fall of the Berlin Wall, in which this Treuhandanstalt, the trusty uh, trust fund, was involved, trust mm -hmm. agency, which was a state uh, organization by the um, Western um, state, West Germany state. So they uh, basically took over those companies that uh, used to be in, uh, in the hands of a socialist uh, state apparatus and basically privatized them. That was uh, the main goal was to, you know, adapt them to the financial and economic structures uh, of, the, of the Western world. And hand in hand with this process uh, went the, um, the privatization and the subsequent uh, dis dismissal of uh, many employees. Millions uh, lost their jobs. Um, so it was a it was a process that took a couple of of years, and it created a lot of discontent in the in the eastern Germany population, which at the beginning, after the uh, fall of the Berlin Wall, was very euphoric. You say uh, so yeah. about about the possibilities of change, about capitalism, which back then in a naive uh, ways. They they saw as a as a new way to enter wealth and prosperity uh, quite easily, not um, yeah, not anticipating what were then to be the problems involved in it, privatizations, loss of many jobs, something that they in the Eastern uh, system, Eastern Germany, had never experienced the, something like um, unemployment. Somehow you. You had your role in this apparatus, and uh, unemployment, uh, and this, yeah, great discontent, and create created a big distrust vis-a-vis -vis the state, the Western state, state in general, and well, that's why nowadays you still have a lot of um, people from East Germany who, yeah, are. Easy target, an easy target for populism and especially for right-wing populism in the last years. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you, there are many reasons why we could look at that, um, and uh, they are fascinating topics as well. I, I wouldn't want to move away too much from Rovede because I think that is the, the the topic that you wanted to discuss essentially, um, and it's it, it is interesting. Considering this this backdrop, uh, there are many other issues that we could also talk about, and maybe one day we should um, you know, sort of expand uh, the conversation to talk about the reunification uh, and and how it was undertaken, and, and what the you know, the subsequent you know, 
uh, events were as, it, as, as as we can look at it uh, now uh, and, and analyze whether or not this was you know a successful project but with with regards to Roveda, he was assassinated in his home um, the, the 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 red army faction um, which yeah, obviously in German it's RAF, but for, for a Brit, when you hear the RAF, we think about the Royal Air Force. Yeah, so that's why when I first got your text message and you said, oh, there's a German politician who was assassinated by the RAF. And I thought, one minute, what happened here? Um, but then obviously afterwards I realized you meant the Red Army faction. Um, it, but these people, they they admitted that they had done it. And exactly, yes. they were in prison. It was... I must yeah. say that was uh, kind of, um, let's say, my my mistake, if you want to assume that there might have been some false flag attack involved, as was the case, as we may later discuss, with the Stay Behind Army, the Gladio Network, and so on. So given that it was attributed and it had been, um, uh, yes, had been even admitted by the, by the, uh, our, RAF, the Rote Armee faction, that they had killed this person. So that um, kind of made it suspicion, suspicious to me because in that time and uh, especially the two decades leading up to um, to this murder in 1991 of Oveda, um, yes, a lot of supposedly allegedly uh, um, uh, murders allegedly committed by the RAF were uh, late to be discovered to be false flag attacks by right-wing groups. So, but in the connection of Rohwetter, it turned out to me um, it was pretty, yes, um, certain that this was actually a, a murder carried out by, by the left-wing uh, terrorists. Because apparently this guy is the leader of this trusty fund, um, trust agency, had had spurred a lot of um, resentment in the population in the East. He was seen as the kind of devilish uh, face uh, was the president of this state agency. So it's, it seems pretty clear that the Rote Armee faction in fact carried out this murder as a symbol and then later um, it seems they have even said, since we could not reach Theo Weigel, which was the finance minister of uh, West Germany at that time, we took him, we murdered this Rovida guy. Well, I mean, Rovida, I think, you know, he was offered to have additional security uh, set up, but uh, he dismissed it. Um, and I believe that there was there was talk that he'd been warned uh, a month before, and yet he didn't heed the warning. Um, you, you're right to mention false flag operations. Um, yeah, again, it's also possible that the you know, the people who actually did kill him um, had been convinced to do it by other political sources. But then we're talking, you know, then we're going into like a poker syndrome where you know, you know, what do you have? What do I have? What does what do you think I have? What do you think I think you think have? It's in you know, it's non-stop thereafter. Um, and that's where uh, a lot of theories start to fall apart because there's no actual proof um, you know, to suggest that there are other elements involved. However, I do also 
remember when I came across in Italy the case of Aldo Moro, um, and there it was La, La Brigata Rossa, I believe, um, which mm. was involved. La Brigata and, Rossa. Yeah, and again, not too far, shall we say, with regards to names, nor indeed ideology. Um, and yet in that case, Aldo Moro was, um, I believe, a socialist, unless I'm mistaken, uh, a, a rising well, he was a star. He was a was conservative. He? Okay. But a, but a liberal conservative, as in a, a rising star um, in the... He was, um, he was a, a politician who said to have uh, tried to um, overcome the, the antagonism between communists left and right um, and try to search uh, a peace agreement, if you want, on a political level. And that uh, spurs the idea, the suspicion... Um, that it was in fact, it could have been a covered action then carried out, uh, maybe even carried out by the uh, Red, the Brigade Rosse, which was the equivalent of the Red um, Red Army faction in Germany, if you mm -hmm. want. And um, yes, it is not really clear what exactly was behind this murder of Aldo Moro. Don't even recall the year now, but it's. In this case, it could, in fact, be more um, probable that there was some sort of covered action involved. Uh, I, I'm, I'm pretty certain with regards to Aldemoro, because I, I can't see why a, a sympathizer, somebody who wanted to um, you know, bring into mainstream politics these left in, uh, leftist uh, influences, uh, why should somebody like that be taken up by the left? You know, um, it makes no sense to me. And it's, it's quite simple. If somebody publicly supports your movement, you normally get behind that person. You don't take them out. And so yeah, therefore, but I think you should also take into account that radical factions, be it on the right or on the left, they would also fear for a certain... Um, it's, um, for, for a certain agreement between right and for a peace between the right and left because they gain their power and their influence uh, and their role through this antagonism so it is, cannot be discarded that uh, that even the red army the brigata rossa may have been may have had an interest also in killing him yeah but there are many questions that remain uh, about the Red Brigade, which, with regards to the Red Army faction, uh, aren't necessarily the case. Because the Red Army faction continued to operate in the way that they did until they were arrested. And I think a lot of them, even now, those who remain who are in prison, um, you know, that was it. You know, after the leadership was arrested um, for another crime, I think they, they tried to you know, kill somebody else. You know, after they were arrested, you know, thereafter the the group's ability to mobilize itself was, you know, greatly diminished. Whereas in Italy, the Red Brigade, nobody was really caught. You know, and uh, that kind of lends itself to the thought, okay, what what's missing? You know. Mm -hmm. Um, so that, that's one of the reasons why I, I wouldn't necessarily put the, the, the murder and of Rovida in that bracket. So therefore, I agree with you to say that it probably isn't a false flag. Um, though you could obviously point to the fact that why did they um, 
you know, assassinate this individual when you know, perhaps there would have been a far more effective course of action to try to um, produce know, social activity, demonstrations against what was going on. Um, maybe that's far too you know, peaceful uh, an option. Maybe it's easy to look back at it now and say, why, why didn't you just talk about it? Maybe they had been trying to talk about it. Um, but yeah, I, I think these people were dead set on violence and that was simply the way that they chose to communicate. Yes, I agree. In terms of Robert, uh, I assume same. But maybe we should come to talk about what really is much more probable were, um, were false flag attacks than attributed to uh, the, the Brigate Rossi in Italy. Speaking of stay behind network and uh, the, the 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 branch of it in Italy called Gladio, because what uh, since you mentioned the Red Ar- uh, the Brigata Rossa in first place, uh, it is in fact known, let's say uh, today, that the Brigata Rossa were allegedly uh, said to have committed big um, strategy, um, bomb attacks, terrorist attacks in the 60s, uh, 60s, 70s and uh, into the 80s. And it turned out later that these were actions carried out by right wing terrorist groups who yeah, counted on the, uh, on, on the false flag idea of later blaming the left for it and by this shifting the, the political paradigm to the right, to the more conservative, and to give more power to secret services and inner security, shifting what was threatening to become uh, a shift towards the left, because the Communist Party of Italy back then was strong, really strong. They reached over 30%. And yes, these, these attacks strangely uh, happened just right before elections um, in the elections it turned out that um, yeah that this uh, that the main motivation to shift the equilibrium towards more conservative right-wing policy uh, worked the plan worked out pretty well yeah I mean I, I would take things back to uh, the Marshall plan where essentially they, the post-war uh, governments decided to split the world into two spheres of influence. And essentially the Soviet Union agreed to its eastern sphere um, and the, the Western democracies sort of created their own sphere. And Italy and Germany quite clearly were within, or the Western, former West Germany were quite clearly within the Western zone. And one of the parts of the deal was that Soviet Russia or the Soviet Union would not assist communist party uh, sympathizers or communist sympathizers in Western countries. And so therefore, these stay behind networks were essentially there as an additional force to make sure that that there was no direct attacks uh, carried out, but also that had there been any undercover operations, that there would have been um, groups on the ground that could immediately act against those particular interests. Um, but they also obviously wanted to 
moved the local populations of those countries away from considering communism as a viable political option. And this is essentially the work that the um, Gladio did um, throughout Italy in those years, but also you know, in the different names that they had in the different countries. Each country had its own name um, and it was extensive. And if you look at it now, you could say particularly successful. Um, it, it would also be interesting to, for us to be able to analyze it on, you know, on another occasion exactly why the West considers communism and its little brother socialism to be such a, uh, such a bad approach to managing society. Um, and I think that's something that we, we would probably have to you know, really consider from a number of different perspectives. Um, mm. But to go back to go back to this this initial one with uh, with regards to Horvath, because of the time, because of the the years and what had preceded it, and you know, because we, we we've lived through in the last twenty years after nine uh, eleven, lots of different little terrorist explosions or attacks that have been carried out in in uh, the European Union or in European countries. Um, and to, to a lesser extent, uh, you know, in, in other parts of, of the Western Hemisphere. Um, so you, what we had before um, the Soviet Union collapsed was also quite extensive and over a long period of time. And you know, so the question remains whether or not these events played a big role in shaping the political environment of the post-war years as a result? Yes, that's the question. It would be necessary to analyze every country country by country because it was a, a network, a uh, covered network operating in the, uh, the whole of Europe. And it was under the, mm, yes, let's say under the, in, under the control of, an, of, the, of the NATO back then, of the US intelligence, and it had different branches, as you hinted at before. Only, I think, the reason why Gladio was to become the most uh, known branch of this network is because it, in fact, had a major influence on local politics, on Italian politics, and uh, whereas the operations of this network uh, in the other countries of journey may not have had this big this uh um, this type of influence in the in shaping the political land sphere uh landscape of this uh of this time gladio uh in fact as i as i hinted at before um operated very efficiently because the 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 us intelligence managed to um, to gather a lot of, yes, uh, let's call them um, Nazi or fascist exiles, and uh, yeah, join forces and create a network that was meant to uh, to work in first place. It started the, the idea was to uh, operate in the case of a post nuclear war scenario in which they thought that Soviet Union, for instance, 
would be mainly the industry would be destroyed by atomic uh, warfare, but still there would have been a, a country and a society and a lot of things to manage. So these, uh, the idea of the stay behind network in first place was to create uh, a plan that was to be carried out in that uh, in the occasion of such uh, uh, post-nuclear um, situation. And this this was the the main idea driving the first uh, attempts of of this um, U.S. intelligence to counter what was then uh, regarded as the threat of the Soviet system. So we're talking about 46 right after the Second World War when these state behind networks were created and established in the in the upcoming years, and um, then through they were, the connections. They were, sorry, yeah. but in '46 is quite early. So if they were established then, they would have been established on an unofficial basis. And I think that they were they were more they were made official later on after the uh, Western countries actually formalized their uh, security agencies because I, I believe the CIA didn't exist until later on. CIA existed from '47. Yeah. And one must say my my readings that I did before this talk um, suggested that. Before the creation of the Central Intelligence Agency, whose role it was later to carry out uh, operations in uh, in other countries, there was different. There were different players in the U.S. intelligence uh, world. One was called Central Intelligence Corps, uh, and it was this uh, apparently this network that in '47 also was also still operating as a as a network that uh, was. Um, yeah, carrying out operations in other countries, covered mm -hmm. operations. So yeah. it was back then in '47 that this was uh, officially uh, un unrolled. Uh, this this plan, the Stay Behind Network, came into existence back then, okay. and uh, it it gradually shifted uh, a bit its its focus. But this was also due to the fact to something that I found very interesting in this analysis of an, uh, of a secret intelligence historian from the from the US called uh, Simpson. He was suggesting that the uh, the US intelligence, the real core of it, did not have such a big control, not even uh, knowledge of so much what was being carried was being carried out by uh, this the, the branches within the countries. There were branches also in the Soviet world, in the post-Soviet world of Ukraine, for instance, but and there were the there was the, the were the branches in Europe. So the idea he was suggesting is that the U.S. intelligence did not have so much knowledge about, but let them, uh, you know, in, you know, put certain ideas and uh, intentions in in these networks' motivations heads and uh, let them operate more or less uh, under the general um, plan to undermine Soviet influence and this uh, system of, and the threat, the political threat of, of the uh, socialist idea also for Europe. So I yeah. found this idea pretty interesting. Yeah, yeah, I've, I've also um, read um, about how the, the 
early post-war years, the the Allies essentially relied upon uh, the Nazi network in uh, spying on the Soviet Union. So Galen and his network, which eventually became the BND, were perhaps also involved in uh, military briefings for the USA and other countries because they were there. And so more than military briefings, this this Galen group is known. This name I've uh, read a lot about in connection to uh, Stay Behind Networks and and Gladio because um, this this branch in in Germany um, was exactly uh, a collaboration between this U.S. intelligence part and uh, Galen Group, which was then later to become BND, or which can give an idea of how the idea of BND and Secret Service was was influenced by this uh, general Western U.S. policy, intelligence policy. Yeah, I mean, this all this all comes down to essentially how much the the, the West feared communism, mm. you know, and and it's something that we've also touched upon when we 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 talked about the French Revolution because, um, you know, we also talked thereafter about the the impact that the the 1917 Bolshevik Revolution had on Western society and how the the assassination of the Tsar and his his entire family completely horrified. The West, and and the idea that such such an idea could, uh, or su- such a, a political ideology, could somehow spread again in the 20th century, was horrific, and that they would do anything they could to stop that from happening. And with regards to the covered covered action strategies of U.S. intelligence, um, one must say that there are two lines uh, of, mm, of action, if you want. One is the one in the decades of the rule of the Nazi party and covered action, as you, uh, in the upcoming of this conversation, you mentioned GoldenEye as a operation uh, that was, in fact, a covered action plan to against Nazi um, the Nazi regime and the threat of the Nazi regime. So, yeah. when in this Spain, that was, that was in Spain during the war, though, right? Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And as the war ended and the Nazi regime was finished, there was a new threat, a threat that never had uh, ceased to be a threat from the time that you mentioned, the 19, 1970. Because if back then, what now are the two big or well until the fall of the Soviet Union to be the two major antagonistic principles governing West uh, and, and East, respectively, uh, came to a, it, it started back then in the, in the first decades of the second uh, century. And one thing I found interesting in my readings is that a um, secret agent, a guy called uh, Boris, Boris Pesh, I think it was his name, he was so old, uh, he was part of the uh, stay behind network, if you want, uh, involved in this. But he was so old that he had been already in uh, in place in the secret service world in the 1917 revo- uh, revolution. So in that time, there was already something going on. So to come back to what I said before, is it was back then that this antagonism first came up. Then the Nazi regime posed the biggest threat 
to to U.S. interests in Europe. So it shifted there. All covered action, all gen general, uh, you know, foreign policy shifted to uh, to fighting the Nazi regime. And then this uh, turns the the older antagonism between communism and capitalism, if you want to put it bluntly, came up. Uh, again in in 46 47 this time when new strategies were uh, developed yeah i mean i i guess in many ways it's interesting to to consider the thought process processes that must have taken place when the you know, britain france and the Soviet Union teamed up to fight this, uh, you know, national socialism uh, that, that had emerged so dramatically in 1933. But then, obviously, is that the war, as it were, that began as a response to the invasion of Poland in 1939. Um, but it, but it's interesting, I guess, also to understand the motivations behind that alliance, because quite clearly, for Britain and France, um, early on, this is before the USA joined. Uh, the alliance. For them, it was difficult to get into bed with a communist country, but clearly they identified uh, Hitler's Nazis as a far greater evil, mm. if I can use the word evil. Um, and afterwards, maybe we can talk about this as well. Um, but you know, if Stalin were to be considered the lesser evil which I don't think we should really be able to compare two evils. But, um, yeah, it's interesting what must have motivated them to to set up that alliance, to then fight against the Nazis. But then, as you say, they were eventually victorious at huge cost to every side that had it, it evolved itself. Um, and the idea was to come up with this international network, which would be more successful than, you know, the, whatever agreements that they had in place in the interwar period uh, because the League of Nations clearly was not a successful model and then they created uh, the United Nations there were a number of different treaties involved between the countries the you know the Treaty of Rome as well uh, to introduce economic uh, unit not unity but uh, sort of um, you know, this working together you're talking about the post second world war period now yes post second world war yeah um, and it's interesting to try to understand the various motivations because what we've got is a world of leaders who want to come together officially, but under the surface, you know, there is there is a framework in every country which is preparing for battle. So you know, so I I ask myself exactly how sincere were they in trying to come together, and indeed were the main figures. Kennedy and Brezhnev, in this case, I would imagine, if we look at the Cold War, were they removed because it was too likely that there would be a unity? And so after 63, when, when Kennedy was assassinated, then we see this, what I would imagine, this growth of assassinations, this growth of violence, uh, not only in the USA, but also in Europe, because essentially they had, or whatever these networks were, they had decided we do not at any 
cost want to consider the possibility of a peaceful solution. It's them or us, never them and us. Hmm. But you, you mean the coalition of Western Europe states now? You still, which, yeah. which networks were you, which interests were you referring to now? The, well, on both uh, sides. On both sides. I mean, in, in, in the West, obviously, you've got NATO, uh, you've got um, the, the the secret agencies, you know, uh, the British uh, agencies, you've got the CIA, you've got the BND, um, but you've also got, you know, the former East German Stasi, you've got the KGB. Mm. So, as in every side has its own little network which exists below the, you know, the government that we can all see. Mm. Yeah, and, and it seems to me that all of these groups, none of them wanted to, to you know, to sit at a desk and speak peacefully. Uh, they wanted no, to do what they wanted they, to do. I mean, these, if you're talking about covered actions and uh, networks, these these networks uh, of of hidden uh, structures that are mm, not in public and don't don't even come to public awareness because they operate uh, in a hidden way they have their power from uh they they get their power from concealing information from operating uh, under the veil and uh, without having to um take responsibility for their actions so whoever was involved in some sort of secret uh, uh endeavor on, on both sides, um, of course, had ne never had a genuine interest in, in bringing about some kind of peace between the two worlds. I want to call them like this. So what we see essentially is this this vast network of cells. You know, these are essentially cells, domestic cells. Now, whether you consider them to be terrorist cells or not, that is completely dependent upon your ideology. But we do have these cells. These cells have access to uh, weapons, stashes all over the, the individual countries in which they exist. Um, the reason why we consider this entire uh, network Gladio is because uh, Andreotti was the first person or first leader to come out and say they exist. And so that's why everybody looks at it and says, oh, Gladio. Um, uh, and that's what essentially made that name famous was because because of that. They were the first to come out. Um, but before, because there is a there is another argument which we, we could perhaps go into at a, on another occasion, because there's so much to discuss before that. Yeah. Um, but essentially, the fall of the Soviet Union left a lot of these agencies you know, holding a lot of weapons without any clear target to point at yeah you, the fall of so sorry uh, sorry to interrupt the fall of soviet union or do you mean the fall of the nazi regime no 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 the fall of the soviet union because we're talking about post post-war um stay behind networks yeah so you know after after the after the soviet union collapsed you had these stay behind networks where okay there is no more a fear that the Soviet Union is going to somehow influence uh, communist uh, sympathizers in Western democratic countries. So, you know, what are they going to do? Where, where is the target? 
you know and I, I do believe so therefore you know we will perhaps have to look at the the shift all of a sudden from cold war uh, status to the middle east yeah which happened quite quickly if i'm not mistaken the first gulf war uh, occurred in 91 right um so next target first it was nazi regime second soviet system and in the end the new threat is the uh, muslim terrorism and yeah well the, and they, so they call it uh, i think it's fun fundamentalism yeah and um fundamental yeah, that's islam. a better way to phrase it yeah, yeah fundamental islam um but but before we get to any of that we are still talking about the the topics of you know, these networks within the european union because that's what we know most as in these networks i think pretty much carried out their uh, their attacks in south american countries in african countries in in other parts of of asia we have no idea as in it will take any number of um, any number of months, I suppose, to become even moderately familiar with all of the work that they did, uh, trying to undermine uh, local governments and uh, creating their own uh, sympath sympathetic regimes. But you know, we do have this situation where um, we no longer knew whether or not it was the 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 Red Army faction that had shot Rohrveda, at least in the initial stages, even though they they claimed it practically immediately and said that this was our work. Um, but because of all of this, uh, all of these um, events, all of these terrorist um, uh, plots that had taken place in the preceding 20 or 30 years, it wasn't clear, you know, exactly what was going on, who had done it, was it really them? Um, and you know, who was behind it, who was behind the shooter, essentially. And I think that's also a part of what you were alluding to when we came to talk about whether or not we'll discuss Rovid, was because of the um, just the environment that had been created. Mm. You know, it, it, couldn't, it couldn't simply be a question of the Red Army faction doing what they did, because, you know, what about all the others? What about um, you know, the, uh, the, the right wing? Uh, terrorists um you know was this something that had been organized by some other faction you know was this um one yeah. one, one thing that should be uh, emphasized is the fact that after the second world war when these um these say uh, secret stay behind networks came into existence there was a shift in the strategy of uh, u.s intelligence so when before they had been uh, fighting Nazis and trying to, there was the so-called Entnazifizierungsprozess uh, in Germany. Uh, mm -hmm. So the general, um, the, the alleged, alleged goal was to clear, to, uh, to cleanse all the, the German system uh, of any elements of, of the past, of the Third Reich. But then there was a shift in this strategy. Uh, in the general strategy, in foreign policy, your intelligence strategy. So instead of um, fighting these people, they connected or they saw as as uh, major and important uh, historic roles in the in the Third Reich uh, apparatus. So they tried to incorporate those with uh, with 
strong knowledge of how things work, like Galen, into their new strategy, which was to, um, yeah, to direct covered actions against the, the, the communist threat, if you want. So yeah. this, this shift in strategy is very interesting. That uh, the the supposed enemy in the moment, the, the supposed uh, enemy in terms of ideology, uh, in the moment that the enemy itself, as a political system that works and has warfare and can participate in warfare and so on, like the Nazi regime, when it ceases to exist, there can, there's a new ideological enemy, and to combat this new ideology, uh, ideological enemy, you incorporate the older the enemies, the older, uh, the late enemies, to fight to to make use of their knowledge and their anti-Soviet motivation. I mean, I, I guess you could look at it in from the perspective that this is a shift in policy. You could also perhaps look at it on uh, in another way, which says that the this is actually the establishment of what has become known as Nazi International. Uh, that after the Second World War, the the, the leaders that had uh, run things during uh, Hitler's Germany had distributed their network around the world, and it took them time to get reorganized. And perhaps they saw the savior to their way of doing things by incorporating that into the new structures that had been created by the victors, as it were. But you know, it was also quite early on in their thinking that, you know, for example, Operation Paperclip, they save as many useful Nazis as they could, as did the Soviet Union. Um, and you know, Adenauer's government, his cabinet was full of uh, former Nazis. So, yeah, it, it was a far easier process to uh, include these elements than it was to get rid of them. And in fact, I'm, I'm, I'd love to, I'm, I'm trying to get to speak to somebody who is a bit of a specialist on the, the Nuremberg trials. Uh, I'm not sure I will be able to do that. So if not, then I'm going to have to go into all of the research um, and try to find something myself. Um, you know, but all of this is an interesting backdrop to what became you know, the Cold War. And what we're analyzing here, backwards and forwards, you know, with the different bits of information that we have, um, it, it is interesting because it's, it has somehow brought us uh, into the current world in which we live. Mm. And, and we look at it and we say, okay, this, the Second World War finished um, you know, over 70 years ago, and still our societies are not able to function in a peaceful way. We still have divisions. We still have huge inequalities that we have to deal with. Even though technology has gone forward, human enlightenment has done nothing of the sort. And the question has to be asked, why is that the case? And maybe the answer lies in some of the evidence that we are pointing out ourselves. We were never really given a chance. You know, at, ever since the Second World War, 
something has made us stay alert to potential danger. Always. Mm. There's, there's always some, let's call it geopolitical antagonism between major forces. There's always some potential of warfare and the threat and the militarization still goes on. I mean, and that has never come to, a, to an end. And uh, atomic warfare is uh, and nuclear war is still uh, uh, unfortunately possible. And yes, it's it's. I think the the main way to to go is to make knowledge more available. All these things that we talk about are still in the realm connected to. Uh, to the world of, yeah, let's call it conspiracy theories and so on, but they are important to show how forces, uh, even also hidden from public consciousness, mostly hidden, work and shape the, the political, geopolitical landscape on the, in the first place. And then, uh, this, uh, this is also a major, a major, driving force in how our societies within the states, uh, even in the Western world, are constituted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and you know, many questions will continue to arise from, you know, from what kind of education uh, we're talking about, who will put that education together, um, and you know, will it be successful in writing the, the ills of society? Um, you also said that there will always be, uh, you know, this kind of uh, aggression somewhere around the world because of geopolitics. You know, why is that a defeatist mentality? Am I naive? Um, you know, is no, the reality somewhere in between? It has, it has to be like this. I don't. I, on, on the contrary, I think that the more we know, the more we get aware of how things work, uh, the more we can shape also our. Uh, political systems and try to, in our small possibilities, try to work for a uh, better system within one's own country first. And I think the way is through emancipation, through knowledge. And uh, I don't see that, maybe I put it in the wrong way, I don't think that these forces are necessary. It's just that uh, when looking back in history, things always uh, seem they fall, follow some logical patterns, and uh, it seems somehow, um, yes, unescapable. But that's that's how you. <laughs> that's the difference about looking uh, of, of looking back into history and looking forward. Learn mm. from history mistakes, right? Okay, so in in your opinion, uh, just to bring to an end because we've got we we have this sort of psychological limit of an hour. I think most people's attention span yeah. probably closes uh, about after about thirty minutes. But um, just to bring to um, in your mind, if I were to ask you, is there anything particularly sinister other than indeed the act itself of the Harvard assassination? Are you quite clear in your mind that it was? the uh, the Red Army faction? 
Well, to be honest, uh, to make it clear about, I heard about this case, as I said in the beginning, only recently through this Netflix documentary. A friend told me of this episode. So I, I, I did my first investigations and actually saw another documentary, didn't finish the Netflix one, which is more, you know, uh, uh, meant to be a kind of story, you know, dram dramatized and so on. But I saw another documentary and I think, uh, my impression was that there's not necessarily major covered action behind uh, the uh, alleged murder by the Red Army faction. Uh, I think the reason, the immediate reason, uh, and, and what was uh, the driven, driving reason behind the murder is pretty clear if you see what the work of this institution was. And uh, I do think, as you also hinted at before, that there are some um, networks some terrorist groups that just operate through violence and there this was a symbolic act meant uh directed against uh what was uh, yes seen as the capitalist takeover of the eastern uh german economy okay fair enough i i i i from what i've read uh of the of the hovid uh, um assassination i think i i i agree that they they did have uh, the people who had done it in prison, um, even though they weren't actually tried for that particular murder. Um, but they did uh, admit that it was them. Uh, and, and I think it's, I think yes, German society true. is satisfied that uh, justice was indirectly done, you know, even if they, they were never actually tried for it. Um, yeah, okay. the actual yeah. murder of this person is not known. So it is attributed to the Red Army faction, but he's not personally, has never stood trial for that. No, but I think he died in prison uh, before he was able to stand trial, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, I don't mean okay. to, uh, yeah. yeah, I don't mean to, uh, to, to do a spoiler for you, but um, yeah, I think that's, I think that's probably what happened. Um, okay, Alvaro, uh, yeah, we, we, we've got. We've, we used Roveda, this poor man, um, as a means of opening up many different avenues of conversation uh, for finding a way forward to what we will perhaps see as the, the enlightened uh, future that lies ahead of us. Uh, I wonder how far ahead it, it is indeed. Um, but th you know, there are shoots of hope, I guess. Um, Alvaro, thank you. It's Good Friday, and um, yeah, you've uh, yeah, uh, you definitely set my mind aflutter with some of your thoughts. So uh, yeah, let us see uh, what we come up with uh, yeah, on our next conversation. Yes, um, I'm glad to have talked to you, and I hope we can yeah, deepen some of the topics we've talked about or touch touch them in some other occasion. Absolutely. And I'm looking forward to it. And uh, after this, I'm sure we'll make plans for our next one. Um, so thank you very much, Alvaro, and uh, speak to you soon. Thank you. Bye.